Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Whether we show it or not, we are one body in Jesus Christ. And that's what it will be in the new heavens and the new earth. Second thing we want to see is this, that Christian unity is not just eternal, but it's also essential. The Bible doesn't teach unification of Christians just for some sort of simplicity's sake or some sort of challenge to watch us fail. It teaches us uh, unity because it's essential for us to unlock the very life that God wants us to live in Jesus Christ. Said it this way, Christian maturity is unlocked in Christian unity. And what's interesting about the idea of unity is that we see a longing for unity about everywhere you turn. Humans in general understand and know the value of unifying. If you go into a particular workplace and you have a, people, a group of people that work together like a team, there's a goal for that team to have some sort of unity. Let's work together because our best productivity is found when we are on the same page. Walk into somebody's home, whether they have parents or children in the home, a marriage in the home or not, you see sort of this idea that if we don't have the same goals and the same priorities and the same values, our family's not going to work properly. We've got to have unity in the home. We see a call even for unity in our politics, don't we? There's this overall constant drum that's beating that's saying, we've got to figure out how to be united because this is unproductive, unhealthy, and not good for anything. And we see this drive for there to be unity, yet we haven't figured out how to do it. What about the church, the local body of Jesus Christ? How are we going to do this? How is unity going to be experienced like it's built for us in heaven? And what's interesting is about every 15 or 20 years in church history or Christian history, you see a wave of new resurgence for church unity, for there to be a coming together of all Christians to be one, typically called an ecumenical movement, meaning we've got different um, denominations, different understandings of faith, but under the umbrella of Christianity, is there a way for us to figure out how to be one? And this sort of waves uh, in and out of our uh, culture and in and out of our generations as we live, this desire to be one. And here's what we find out about that every time it happens, that unity is directly tied to what you believe. Unity is directly tied to what people believe and if that's the case then our division with each other is a result of disagreement over belief now you might not think because sometimes it gets trivial but let me point this out to you every moment of division amongst believers revolves around some kind of belief now, the reality is this one some beliefs are stupid i'll just tell you that we sometimes hold beliefs that we should not hold that are just completely either wrong or ignorant. For example, churches have divided over things that are absolutely not important. Like 
um, maybe should we have pews or should we have chairs? Should we have carpet or this color or that color? Some of those beliefs, like I believe we should have this and I believe we should have that, are just stupid. They're unnecessary. And people are divided over that, but it's still a belief. Secondly, some beliefs are just not essential over fighting over. Paul would talk about this in 1 Corinthians and in Romans when he was teaching about how to relate to the brothers. He was saying that there are some people who would buy meat at the market and that meat would be offered to idols and that would violate the conscience of some people but it wouldn't violate the conscience of other people. And he was saying, listen, you can hold the belief that you should not eat a certain meat. No problem. Hold that belief. Live that belief. But you should not divide the church over that belief. He's saying there's something bigger. And he would tell those who don't have a conscience problem with that particular meat eating, he was saying, listen, don't eat it for the sake of the conscience of your brother or sister. Don't break the church up over that. You can have that belief, but it's not essential. The third one is this. Some of our beliefs are indispensable, meaning we can't change them. Meaning if you don't hold these, you are not a Christian. Because Christianity is built on a certain set of beliefs. For example, if I say that I don't believe that Jesus Christ raised from the dead, I would advise you to have me stop preaching for you, okay? I also would advise you to tell me I'm not a Christian and I need to step out. Because Christianity is built on the belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on a Roman cross, buried in a tomb that was not his, and raised back to life to ascend to be with the Father. You see, that's essential, indispensable. Now, here's what happens. Most division amongst Christians happens over the first two that I explained to you, the stupid ones and the non-essential ones. Most division amongst Christians happen in the first two because we as a group of people grow dull to the indispensable ones. We assume everybody gets it. We have learned them and our generation and we raise up another generation and we just assume young people are going to hang out in the church long enough and get the essential, indispensable truths of Christianity. And the reality is we have to stay sharp, fresh, intense about these core beliefs of Christianity so that when the stupid ones or the non-essential ones pop up, we say, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. We are bound together by indispensable beliefs, and I won't let my stupid beliefs or even my unessential or non-essential beliefs divide us because we hold a union over the essential, indispensable beliefs. Are you with me? Okay. Welcome to the next seven weeks. Seven indispensable truths of unity. That we, as a body here, must hold. And if we don't hold them, we might hang out in this same building for the next 5 years, 10 years, or 20 years. But there will be a moment when there is an unnecessary or non-essential belief that pops up that will divide us. If we don't zero in and understand, read it again with me and you'll pluck out the 7. He says, there is clearly... One body, one spirit, just as you were called, in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. You ready to do these seven? Let's start with one body, okay? What does he mean by that? One body. 
Let's start, first of all, with the principle of one body. What is he actually saying? And you'll see at the beginning of Ephesians, chapter 1, 22 through 23, whenever Paul is talking about the body, it's shorthand for the church. He says that he has set Jesus Christ in chapter 1, after he raised him from the dead, over the body, to be the head of the body, which is, comma, the church. So when Paul says there is one body, what he's saying without any shadow of a doubt is there is one collection of people who are the body of Jesus Christ. There is one group, one called out, one gathering, one fellowship, one following, one group of disciples who claim Jesus Christ is the head of the church. One body emphasizes this idea of singularity. Now why is that? Why is the Bible, Paul, Jesus, so intense on this. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church, my church, the one that belongs to me. So, but why is the Bible so zeroed in on this singularity? Why is it so keyed in on this? Well, it's not just for logistical simplicity. It's not like Jesus is up in heaven saying, I don't want to keep track of all this stuff. I don't have spreadsheets. There's no Excel in heaven. Like, I don't know what's going on with all you. It's not for logistical simplicity. It's for testimonial clarity. There is one body. The singularity of the church bears the responsibility of communicating the singularity of salvation. That's heavy, okay? That's a lot, but get this. The singularity of the church, the unity of the church, bears the responsibility to a watching lost world to communicate this one essential truth. There is one way to the Father, Jesus Christ. We bear that responsibility. We are, there is one mediator. Paul says that there is one God and one mediator, the, the one that goes between God and us, his name is Jesus Christ, the man Jesus Christ. There's one mediator. He says there's one advocate in 1 John, meaning there is only one being next to the throne of heaven saying, hey, he or she is one of mine. They're mine. I'm advocating for you to God. Jesus right now in this very moment at this breath is advocating for his people to the throne of heaven. He says that there is one way. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except they go through me. I am the way. He says that there is only one foundation. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, make sure that when you build, he's talking about a building a life eternal, and he uses this analogy of building with um, wood and sticks, and he says, listen, fire consumes that stuff. It's temporary. When you build, you need to build with something eternal. But when you build... Make sure you build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Because you might build a life on something else, and it won't stand. There's only one foundation. And he says this, there's only one head. The body analogy is used to display this picture to you. And you can imagine this. There's only one head, and one head has one body. Many members, yes, in just a moment we'll share about this. Many members, but one body. And so the Bible is serious about one body because that's the reality that there's only one way to the Father, there's only one person mediating, there's only one Savior. And so the essential aspect of being one group has to do with that reality. But I have a question for you. How does that square with what we see in our world, right? Can't just breeze past this reality. 
I think there's like 33,000 um, different subgroups and groups of subgroups that call themselves Christians just in the United States. Divided over class and race, divided over certain doctrines and beliefs, divided over certain foundational principles. How do we square this call for unity of the body and this immeasurable amount, this, this innumerable amount of different subgroups that have found reasons to not be together? How do we square that? Here's my best answer for you. Ready? I don't like what I see at all. And I don't think you like it. The division that we see in the world today is a failure of people. It's a failure of us. Division is a fruit of sin, and we as humans fall under sin, and we divide for many, many different reasons. But here's the deal. The success or failure of people was never intended to be a source of faith in God. So many people look to how humans behave to either believe in God or not believe in God. But God has never actually asked us to look at the success or the failures of people and say, now you know I exist. Now you know what I'm saying is true. So here's how we square this. Like many things, I can't control figuring out a way to get all 33,000 different denominations to be one. I don't know how to do that. It's over my skis, right? I don't know how to get all the churches in Pickerington to be one. I don't know how to get all the churches of Christ in Central Ohio to be one all the time. I don't know how to do that. But like most things in life, we can't always control what happens outside our house, but what about inside of our house? So here we are. What is the practice of being one body? The principle is true. He wants there to be one body for testimonial clarity to the singularity of salvation. He wants us to tell people there's one way, Jesus Christ, to be saved. So how are we going to practice that as one body? I want to take you to two places. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to read a couple passages there. Because you and I have to burrow this truth down into the practice of how we live with each other. How we treat each other. How we live in respect to this idea that there is one body of Jesus Christ. And it starts with this. We begin with how we regard the body. How we think about it. So we've got to start with how you view the body of Jesus Christ. And I don't mean that in just some vague terms like how you view the church generically. I'm saying this body, local body here, how do you think about her? In your mind and in your speech, how do you talk about the body of Jesus Christ that's here? Unity always begins with how you think about the local body. Now listen to this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, Verse 12, for just as the body is one as many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many are one body, so also is Christ. There's one body, but many different parts. And you and I have to think right about this body for there to be unity. First, we have to see other members of the body as essential. Go down to verse 21. Listen to this. Paul says this in verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable. Starts here first of all. We have to see other parts of this body, every single part, not just as allowable, 
but essential. So the parts of this body that are in this group right now are not just parts that you have to put up with, tolerate, or just, yeah, you know, I'm not allowed to kick anybody out, and I don't really have that power, so whatever. He actually challenges your thinking to look at every single part of this body, top to bottom, left to right, as essential to the health of the local body. The ones you like, the ones you respect, the ones you appreciate, the ones that you value what they do, and the ones that you don't even understand. Or maybe have some friction with sometimes. Or get challenged with, or get frustrated by. He says every part of the body is essential. You can't look at one part and say, I don't need that part. And you can't look at another part and say, I'm not sure we need that part. He says every part of the body is essential. So do you see we've got to start there with how we regard the body as others as essential. But secondly, you've got to do this. You've got to see yourself as appointed. Go back to verse 14. Look at this. In verse 14, he says, um, Indeed, the body is not one part, but many parts. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. Is it not for that reason any less part of the body? And if the ear should say, Because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. It is not for that reason any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged each part in the body as he chooses. You see, one of the things that attacks Christian unity is not just believers that look at other believers and say, we would be better without you, but believers that look in the mirror and say, I'm not sure why I belong. I'm not sure I need to be here. This church would be fine without me. And he says, if you're an ear, you can't look at the foot and say, just because I'm not a foot, I don't belong or I'm not needed. A hand can't look at the eye and say that and say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not need needed. He's saying, okay, all of the different parts are essential. And this is not just some pep talk self-esteem thing, okay? This is God himself saying, you are in the body you are in because you're appointed to be there. Now it's our responsibility to discover why. Okay, so we've got to start with how we regard the body, but we've also got to deal with how we relate to the body. We begin with how we regard the body, but we really are developed with how we relate to the body. And if you think about the structure of the body, remember I've said already, Jesus Christ is the head, we are the many members of that one body. And it starts with you and I clinging to Jesus Christ. Every single individual part of this body has to begin with clinging to Jesus Christ himself. Our unity cannot be rested upon, cannot be built upon the fact that we all like each other, that we all always get along, that we never have conflict or fights or disagreements. If that's how we build our unity, it will eventually crumble. But if this unity in this body is built upon every single member, clinging desperately to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There will be a bond that holds us together that's greater. You have to practice daily, daily connection to the head. The head is not just the authority of the body, it's the supply of life. Every member gets its direction, its instruction, and its supply of life from the head. And you and I must do that. You've got to take serious member of the body connection to the head. Do you know Jesus? Do you understand what he's done for you? 
Are you personal and connected to him? Do you understand and allow the gospel to refresh your heart on a daily basis? We've got to get serious about that. You and I must cling to Jesus Christ. And when we rightly relate to him, it shapes the way we relate to everything else. I want to read a second passage in Colossians chapter two with you, or chapter 3, if you'll read this with me. So we first got to cling to Christ. The second thing we've got to do is care for each other. Look down in verse 12. Colossians chapter 3. It says, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a grievance against another, Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. What's the perfect thing that's going to bond us in unity? Love. John said it this way. We love him because he first loved us. And then if anyone has received the love of God, he then must turn around and love his brothers and sisters in Christ. Now watch after he says that you and I are bonded together in perfection and unity by love. He says in verse 15, And let the peace of Christ, to which you were called, in one body rule your hearts. Govern your heart. Dictate how you actually live. Where does the peace that you have come from? Because there are times, as you see here, he says, if anyone has a grievance with someone else, Listen, if we're doing church right, we're going to bump into each other eventually. We're going to have some grievances. We're going to have some frustrations. We're going to have some misunderstandings. That, that's essence of doing church the right way. But he says, what is the thing that governs your heart? The peace of Christ. If our unity is built upon just you and I always getting along and having it figured out and things being easy, if, if that peace is just peace between me and you, It's shaky. It could change. But he says that the peace of Christ rules your heart. And the peace of Christ rules my heart, meaning this, that come what may, whether things are good or things are bad, whether things are right or things are wrong, I know that I have Sabbath rest in Jesus Christ for my soul. Whether I like what's happening or don't like what's happening, whether I would change things or not change things, whether I would do it a different way or not do it a different way. Do you see what I'm saying? He says the peace of Christ rules your heart. And in that, you were called into one body. You and I have to individually cling to Christ and then turn that into a care for each other when he says that we put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. It means that we learn how to absorb difficulties, pain, and hurt like Jesus did for the sake of one body, to testify to a watching world there's one Savior. Okay? There is one body. Here's how we're going to practice it, the way we regard the body, the way we relate to the body. What's all this going to cost, right? What's the price for this one body? What makes us willing to sacrifice for this? You see, your willingness to pay a price for something is always directly related to your understanding or what you believe to be its value. How valuable is it? Meaning, what does it give me and is it worth it? What does it cost? 
And in this one body, let me point this out to you, as Paul says in Ephesians, inside of this one body of Jesus Christ is the reconciliation, the coming together of everything that you and I have ever wanted. That's the solution of Jesus Christ. We have longing, hungry, starving hearts, souls, that are wandering the terrain of this world like the nation of Israel wandering the wilderness, looking for, hungering for, wanting something. And we're desperate for it. We see this in our life everywhere. We want purpose. We want connection. We want meaning. We want acceptance. We want love. You see, all these things are churning in us everywhere. And he says, inside of the body of Jesus Christ, you have the satisfaction of those things. You're reconciled to the Father who is the source of all love. You've been connected to the purpose that's higher and transcends anything you could ever imagine. You have a place where you can be accepted, connected, fulfilled, used inside the body of Jesus Christ. Your deepest hope, being reconciled to God and each other, is here in the body. But what does that cost? What's it going to take for you to get that? And the beauty is this. The price was already paid. The price was already paid. Listen to how Peter says this. 1 Peter chapter 2. This will give you chills if you're in the moment. 1 Peter 2 verse 21. For you were called to this, Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges rightly. He himself bore our sins in his body that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Here's what the Bible says. You and I lose connection to God and connection to each other. We lose the satisfaction eternally because we do what the Bible calls sin, which is departure from God and dissatisfaction in life. And Jesus Christ in his physical body bore the burden of those sins to reconcile you to God. He built this spiritual body at the cost of his physical body. And that physical body died on a cross so that you and I could be reconciled, went into a rich man's tomb, and three days later, that body was resurrected into an eternal, immortal body and raised, ascended to the throne of the Father. And what he has done when he said, I am the way, is paved a way for you and I to stare death in the face, to know that we can die, raise again, and walk in eternity with Jesus Christ. The very thing we're longing for. How important is it to be one body? we got to make sure that we hold on and encourage each other in this one body for that day. And if you're not ready for that day, walking towards that day, living in a way that will make you ready to see your maker, let's fix that right now. Let's stand and sing this song. You can come.